It's often taken for granted that cities should become digital, tech-savvy, smart cities. The idea of the smart city is certainly appealing. But what does it really mean for a city to be smart? How smart? And smart for what? According to Ben Green, assistant professor at the University of Michigan's School of Public Policy, there's a significant risk that in the rush to become smart, we're building cities that are unlivable, unjust and undemocratic. He argues that instead of smart cities, we should aspire for smart enough cities, cities that adopt technology prudently, not blindly, to facilitate civic engagement, augment the democratic process and help implement effective social policy. You're listening to Technology in Prose. I'm Nikita Agarwal, and on today's show, I'm joined by Ben to talk about his recent book, The Smart Enough City, putting technology in its place to reclaim our urban future. Ben, welcome to Technology in Prose. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be able to have this conversation today. So in your book, you introduce a concept that you call tech goggles um, to highlight the risks of the smart city paradigm. What are tech goggles and what's the problem with tech goggle thinking? Yeah, so this was really one of the starting points for me in developing the ideas for this book was that I was working in, uh, was, was coming across a lot of different areas of urban policy and politics that all seem to suffer from the same common failing. All of these areas from transportation to civic engagement to policing and other topics were all trying to turn to technology. And often I would come to those with some interest or excitement about what might be possible, but increasingly found that they were all more or less failing for the same reason, uh, these different initiatives, because they were focused on technology uh, sort of as the central source of the solution. And so that got me really thinking about how are we approaching social problems with technology and how are we coming to understand what these problems are? Uh, And so from there, I developed this idea of tech goggles to describe a particular way of seeing the world, uh, you know, tech goggles being this lens on the world where we might look at any variety of social or political issues and see them as technology problems. And so tech goggles is sort of this filter on you might looking at, uh, you know, inequalities or transportation or policing and seeing it as a technology problem where we can put uh, whether it's algorithms or new sensors or uh, self-driving cars as the solution to these problems. And what that leads to is a whole host of issues because it's fundamentally misunderstanding what these problems are. Uh, There may be certain elements of these problems that can be captured uh, with technology or can certain ways that can be addressed through technology, but it fundamentally misconstrues them as simple problems of optimization or efficiency. And in trying to solve those, you get, you often lead to things that look like solutions because they are developed, they have technology and they're developed with a particular view of the problem in mind. And they look like solutions to that version of the problem. But because it's such a distorted image, they, they often fail to work and uh, actually exacerbate many of the initial problems that are underlying or at the source of uh, what's going on in the first place. 
Can you give us some examples, like from your practical experience working uh, with cities on smart city initiatives? Yeah. So one example that uh, was was very interesting to me was around uh, open data, where a lot of cities in the really in the mid 2010s there was this huge amount of excitement around open data as this source of civic engagement and innovation and really fostering uh, innovation with new technology. And what, what would happen is that cities would put all of this effort into releasing data and have lots of fanfare and get lots of good praise. And then really not much would actually happen. There was not much use usage of this data by the public or by various groups. And uh, there was very little that could often be shown in terms of the benefits of these systems. So here is this example of wanting to treat uh, these problems of innovation as merely being about the technology. If we could release enough data, then that data would just be out there in the world and uh, civic tech groups and researchers would use this and create all sorts of great products and innovations. Uh, and what was completely missed was all of the steps in between those things, all of what might need to happen between releasing data and getting someone to use it, all of the barriers of how different groups may not have the access to working with data or the literacy to work with that data. Uh, and you know what would need to happen to take something that might be some clever reporting app and actually make change with it. So there's this real sense uh, or emphasis on if you just release information that will create change but often that that is not able to do that right people might know or be able to build a web app that says where traffic accidents are, hap are happening or where crime is happening but that's very very far removed from anything that's actually going to uh, build constituent and public power and enable them to actually make change according along uh, you know, any of these sorts of problems. So that's just one example. And it was something that I saw across many of these areas where there was a real faith in the technology alone to provide the solution and all of these other elements uh, that would need to be central to, uh, you know, bringing together some types of reforms were completely erased or ignored. So, so what you're saying is that the um, rush to adopt technology sort of blinds people and cities to the more fundamental problems that they face. And that's kind of the central thesis of the smart enough city, right? Yeah, exactly. That this, this view on smart cities is really an example, sort of a broad example of what this tech goggles thinking gets us, where we're trying to build and we're expecting to build these utopian incredible solutions uh, and in practice are often making these problems worse and are completely uh, sort of obscuring the uh, many of the underlying political elements and certainly the ways that those these types of technologies are reshaping uh, power, reshaping decision-making authority uh, in, in this pursuit of technology. In one of the examples you discuss um, length in the book is the uh, move towards self-driving cars or autonomous vehicles. And I wondered if we could explore sort of tech goggle thinking 
um, in that context. You know, it seems that uh, self-driving cars offer many benefits in terms of public safety, reducing road deaths. So in what ways would self-driving a self-driving future actually um, undermine the quality of life or the, the lived experience of, of citizens? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, these visions around self-driving cars are sort of a perfect case study of, of tech goggles because they're sort of responding to this problem or many of the sort of most influential uh, discussions around self-driving cars, particularly in the context of cities and smart cities, is responding to this sort of seemingly eternal problem of congestion that no one, you know, everyone who lives in a city is frustrated by congestion and is, you know, would love to get rid of it. And there is this idea that self-driving cars can solve that problem, but it comes fundamentally from this tech goggles view of congestion as being merely a type of optimization problem of, you know, the flow of cars through city streets. And what, I would come across is these simulations that show how self-driving cars could get rid of traffic. And they show these sort of simulated videos of city streets of cars zooming through downtown. And what you have, of course, is this sort of very particular uh, optimization, sort of narrow narrow thinking on what this problem actually looks like and what it uh, what a solution could look like. These, in these simulations, there are uh, there's no people on the streets. There's no sense that uh, there may even be speed limits. There's no sense of crosswalks or cyclists or bus lines. So they're really taking transportation as this mere sort of logistics problem of simply cars, which in some settings maybe is more appropriate, but really transporting that into these into city streets and ignoring all of these other dynamics. Uh, and I, I think if you take a closer look at what self-driving cars would likely do, uh, in at least in the way that they're often talked about in city streets, it becomes this sort of incoherent mix of somewhat contradictory visions of what they're going to accomplish, uh, and, and somewhat contradictory to many decades of scholarship on traffic patterns and uh, urban urban planning patterns. Uh, one of the most notable things is that when you increase the, the efficiency of, of travel, make it easier to travel over longer distances, what you often end up getting is that people simply move further away from, from the downtown. Uh, so often, uh, you know, we can see this in things like cars leading to, to more and more sprawl. And you could envision that if you had Uh, self-driving cars that would enable faster travel or that would reduce the costs of travel in terms of your time because you weren't actually driving, that people would move further away from downtown because it would be, you know, an hour long commute would now, or, or, you know, a certain amount of distance that might've been too far today could be uh, within a reasonable amount of time to commute uh, in some future where you had ubiquitous self-driving cars. more, more fundamentally, it's obscuring, you know, by taking this problem and saying, okay, how can we move cars as efficiently as possible? It's an example of how tech goggles really takes these complex political problems and wants to optimize within the particular sort of status quo of institutional and policy arrangements. It's ignoring 
anything that we might want to do with public transit or urban development and simply saying, how can we optimize things within the existing rules and structures and arrangements? Uh, whereas uh, there's you know, much more that we could accomplish by, and, and that many cities have been starting over the last, uh, you know, especially in the last decade, really thinking about how do we move away from a car dominated sprawl centric vision to one that is much more focused on dense mixed use mixed use development and how can we expand our public transit systems to be more uh, reliable, more efficient, more accessible, more equitable. And those are far more capable of transporting large amounts of people at high speeds in dense spaces than even the most efficient vision of self-driving cars are. Is this a case of software um, vendors overselling the potential and the sort of uh, benefits of, of using new technology? Why are cities falling into a smart city trap? Yeah, I think, I think it really, you know, there's a lot of different places where this comes from, but I think most fundamentally, we need to talk about the, the technology sector and the way that they are pitching these broad visions of, of smart cities. Um, really almost creating this idea. I mean, I really think of the smart city as being something that was developed in industry and is very well sort of shared out. Um, I don't think that it really has a has a meaning beyond something that was that was created sort of as a marketing term by by you know major major companies uh, from you know early the earlier sort of Cisco and Siemens and all the way now to uh, you know Google Sidewalk Labs and there's now you know hundreds if not thousands of companies that are at various scales working on this stuff um, and cities are inundated with pitches and proposals uh, about these different technologies, whether it's an app or a platform or a sensing tool. Uh, you know, in my time working in the, the city of Boston, it was clear that, you know, some of the major, the, the major sort of leaders in the technology for the city were all the time going to these pitches that people were coming in, selling them, trying to sell them things, trying to email them, get in the door. Uh, and really presenting, uh, you know, these these what incredible things their technology can do. And certainly over time, city leaders have become a little bit more savvy and skeptical about what those things are. Um, and, and all of this then is occurring in a backdrop where, uh, you know, now we are as a sort of generally as a society, much more skeptical of technology, technology solutionism and, just you know, sort of most fundamentally, the major technology companies. We don't view places like Google with the same uh, positive lens we maybe did five years ago. But there is there's there's often a real sense that technology is exciting, technology is good, and that we should be pursuing technology. So there's also this backdrop of political benefits and political incentives that cities can gain by trying to be seen as forward thinking in terms of technology. Uh, it's often a sort of branding strategy for cities in terms of being able to call themselves smart cities or uh, connected cities, uh, whether that's for economic development or attracting jobs or attracting uh, residents to the city because it has this branding. Um, and so city leaders often at 
you know, all the way up to the level of mayors can see, uh, certainly we're, we're expecting to see benefits from being able to put forward this technology uh, because that's what would be seen as exciting. And that's what, you know, lots of the press and others would want to be, want to be talking about. Uh, so there was really this, uh, this environment where technology companies are putting forward these ideas, not just to cities, but also broadly sort of selling the idea of technology. Um, you know, certainly we've all seen various ads on TV that will, you know, show either IBM's technology or other tools that can make our world more connected and efficient. So creating these dynamics where technology is seen as, as exciting and good. And, you know, to me, this is one of the areas where things have been, been also shifting. And so over the last couple of years, really since I started working on the book, uh, there, there has been some notable shifts in what these dynamics look like. Um, and I think that's, that's been really interesting and for the most part, quite exciting. Yeah, so it seems like we've kind of got stuck in or sucked into a vicious, vicious uh, cycle of, um, you know, just pursuing this technological dream without really thinking about uh, where it's really adding value. Um, I think one of the visible examples of what you describe and maybe the sort of more, more, more caution in the last couple of years is what happened to the Sidewalk Labs project in uh, Toronto. Um, I mean, in, you know, in their own words, this was going to be the world's first neighborhood built from the internet up. But um, last year, they abandoned uh, plans, uh, those plans altogether. Um, why do you think this, why do you think this project was so controversial? And why was it abandoned? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this project is, is really fascinating. And I think is a, a pretty perfect case study for a lot of the things that, that I talk about in the book. It mostly happened uh, sort of after after the book was written, so there's not too much about it in there. Um, you know, so I think you know we can start with that description that you gave. I sort of uh, you know it's it's fascinating. They use this language of right you know neighborhood built from the internet up. So it really presents this sort of completely uh, unfiltered tech goggles vision that if you could create a city that was yeah sort of digital at its core, it would be far better than the cities we have today, far better than sort of retrofitting our current outdated cities with whatever digital technology we can. So there's sort of that fundamental view that Sidewalk Labs was pursuing even before they got involved in the, in the Toronto Keyside project. So that was sort of their uh, major, uh, major vision of what this could look like. Um, and then the, the the project and then sort of perfectly also shows uh, the sort of dominance of public-private partnerships in all of this. So much of tech of smart cities is dominated by public-private partnerships with uh, companies that are the ones sort of developing the technology and uh, Sidewalks Labs did a ton. They have had a ton of sort of vision documents uh, and things like that where they had hundreds of pages of really sort of attractive design sketches of what a future city could look like. Um, so very much selling this vision on, on the future of cities. And I, I think that they were probably, you know, between the, the agencies and the city in Toronto that were spearheading this from the public side to sidewalk labs, surprised by the amount of 
resistance that the project got. And it was, it was uh, controversial for a couple of different reasons. Uh, I'd say that the top level issue, especially early on was privacy. So, you know, I think it's sort of, that's the natural instinct here is you wanna think about Google pretty much creating or developing a city neighborhood, uh, knowing what we know about Google, that raises massive red flags in terms of privacy, thinking about just how many uh, you know, sensors and forms of data collection could be uh, strewn throughout that city. Uh, and, and privacy being certainly one of the major sources of concern and controversy around smart cities globally. And that's that's been something I've been pretty focused on and read about in the book and have worked with a number of cities and advocacy groups to help develop better policies around these issues. Um, so privacy was really the, the major one. Um, and there was uh, or local organizing around it. And uh, I was also involved in a, in a lawsuit that was brought by the CCLA, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association against uh, this project for violating privacy. And certainly, although Sidewalk Labs sort of would talk in very gracious and benevolent terms in terms of privacy, uh, the underlying documents did not show a great concern for privacy. There was a lot of over over promising how either how little data they were collecting or how protected and anonymized that data would actually be. Um, but then the other major debate here was in some ways more fundamental about privatization and autonomy and control over public space. Uh, and I think the conversation really shifted as the project went on away from just focusing on privacy to focusing more on the fact that Google or Sidewalk Labs was going to have and was demonstrating already in the early stages of the project an incredible amount of authority and control over what this project would look like, uh, what the terms would be, what sorts of public input were possible, uh, and all of that. And so around this, uh, one, of the, one of the major groups that rose up was a group called Block Sidewalk uh, that was started after the project was announced and did a ton of local organizing uh, around the project, around all of these issues. Um, and they were you know, certainly really powerful and influential in helping to educate the public and shape the narrative around this project. Um, but you know, there were examples of sidewalk labs attempting to, uh, in some of their, their vision statements, attempting to sort of already lay claim to larger plots of land than had actually been uh, sort of not allocated to them, but allocated as the focus of this project. It was an original 12 acre parcel that was sort of the, the focus of this uh, early stage pilot. And even before that really got underway, they were already talking about needing to expand to larger territories of land. They were running tons of public engagement sessions, but very much had a feel of corporate PR rather than any sort of uh, session that was enabling deliberative or public input. Um, and even were attempting to make some sorts of certain types of claims to various types of tax revenue that would be generated. So there was this, this really deep sense of unease and concern around what this would mean 
uh, not just for the specific technology that might be used or whether it would work or what the privacy considerations would be, but what does it look like or what does it mean to have sidewalk labs having this much authority over the types of things that normally you would have a public representative elected and accountable body uh, in charge of. So the, there was a number of different forms of resistance, the lawsuit, block sidewalk, um, other groups and other reporting and academic scholarship. And in, uh, I believe, May 2019, uh, or no, sorry, May 2020, uh, Sidewalk Labs announced that it was, it was pulling out of the project. Um, so that is now uh, no longer in progress. And to me, a really, really huge turning point and win for thinking about smart cities. Uh, I already talked about how this project represented this sort of hyper tech goggles vision, very much a uh, sort of massive, very industry-led project and very much a, a particular type of smart city thinking around the sort of comprehensive plan. This idea that, you know, the smart city means having these broad systems that are sort of capturing the entire city and you need to have it at that level and these massive uh, citywide or sort of neighborhood-wide projects. Um, and I think this was all of these things uh, coming together made this a sort of perfect case study or of all of the ways that smart city planning could go wrong, um, particularly in the, it's sort of certainly the primary example in the, in the North American context. Um, and the fact that it was able to be defeated and prompted to, to back out of the project is, is to me a major win showing that uh, their you know, public resistance can be organized around these issues. It's, it's not an obvious political win. If you're a mayor or you're an agency trying to think about what you can do to move your city forward, uh, these sorts of, of projects are not, not necessarily going to be uh, immediate wins that will get you lots of political credit and good praise and good press. Um, and really pushing back on these types of large scale uh, public private partnership models. So it seems that, um, that, you know, the management of this project um, lacked in many, many respects, and particularly um, in failing to engage with the local community and to seek their views. Um, but I'm wondering if there is room for a middle way, right? So is any effort to privatize public life um, just, you know, um, a bad idea because it, for the very um, reason that it privatizes public life, it puts uh, control of um, of public spaces and public decisions in the hands of private actors. Or is there kind of is there is there room for a genuine partnership between public and private actors, but one that is better governed, that has more input from the public, from the affected communities, that has better process. It's, it's a really central question, certainly a difficult one. I mean, I think at, at top level, we need to be far more skeptical of, of privatization efforts in, in government than we generally are. And this is true, not just with respect to technology. Uh, it's been a pretty endemic issue in many governments around the world over the last couple decades. Um, you know, I'm not ready to say that there's no role for the private sector in any of this work. Um, I think where we really go wrong is, is in the amount of, 
authority and control that's often handed over uh, to these to these companies and the types of questions that are often uh, sort of given handed over in these privatization efforts. And I think that uh, governments have often been very hands off in terms of certainly with technology, they've often been very relatively lax in terms of what sorts of things they're trying to enforce around technology. Um, really, it, it comes down to, you know, questions of cost, questions of efficiency uh, in terms of the technology, but very rarely do they uh, talk about things like privacy, do they talk about things like transparency and public access. Uh, and so you'll have vendors creating technology for government that's collecting huge amounts of data, that is, you know, running algorithmic systems that have no transparency to the public. They claim, uh, will claim trade secrecy and not enable the public to know how these types of algorithms are working. Um, so, so, you know, I think that governments can take a much more active role in limiting the scope of what the what the vendor or private company is is able to do and responsible for and also ensuring that certain types of safeguards are are met and i think that cities are starting to be much more aware of these issues uh, and i think that one of the one of the key things i would like to see is cities starting to work together more to enforce these types of principles and goals so that they can say, you know, if you're going to be a vendor selling any type of technology for transportation management or whatever it might be, you know, for you to be able to sell this product, you need to meet these conditions. Uh, and I think that cities have not been not been doing that and certainly not been particularly conscious of a lot of these broader infrastructural and institutional ways that privatization efforts uh, and public-private partnerships can, uh, particularly with technology, can lead to uh, social harms and unjust outcomes. Uh, and, and so that that's, a, I think, a real shift that needs to be made. Um, and with smart cities, that often might mean uh, really scaling back the nature of these partnerships. As we see in Toronto, what we had was this incredibly massive project where there's sort of no way to have a project like that that doesn't uh, allow an incredible amount of autonomy and control for uh, you know for the private actors. So we've talked a bit about the the privacy concerns of um, smart city initiatives and we, we looked at the example of the sidewalk labs Toronto project um, and we've also talked about the rush to adopt technology without necessarily thinking about its efficacy um, and where it can where it can help. Another another harm, another um, concern that you um, highlight in the book is the um, implications for fairness and inequality. Could you could you say a bit about how inequality might be exacerbated by adopting new technology? So one of the examples you use is uh, predictive policing software um, in various cities. How would that increase inequality in a city? Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the major focus areas for smart cities is the criminal justice system. Uh, and, you know, so public safety is often one of the major selling points. Uh, and certainly, uh, police departments and criminal justice systems often have been among the more historically data driven groups. So there's sort of a lot of different 
uh, natural linkages between uh, between the criminal justice system and and smart cities. And these types of algorithms have a lot of appeal. Um, so sort of the two that I focus on the most are predictive policing systems, which try to predict where crime is likely to occur to be able to uh, you know, direct police officers out to those locations to more efficiently and equitably prevent crime, and then risk assessments in the criminal justice system, which look at, uh, which will score defendants uh, when they're being either uh, judged before their trial for uh, release or detention, or whether that when they're being sentenced to say, how likely is this person to commit a crime in the future? And the case for both of these types of systems is relatively similar and really are responding to the concerns around discrimination within these systems that, you know, as, as we've become more and more conscious and broadly uh, sort of as a society concerned about questions of police brutality, uh, mass incarceration, and so on, there's been a lot of calls for policing and criminal justice systems to uh, reform and to become more fair in how they're making decisions. And so these algorithms have a lot of appeal to be able to say, well, we have biased humans, we have these judges and these police officers who are, they're racially biased, maybe there's implicit bias for the most part is typically normally the emphasis here. Uh, and so let's just replace that with an algorithm that can accurately predict where crime is likely to occur or which individuals are likely to uh, to commit crime. And these have gotten incredible amounts of bipartisan support. Uh, you know, many police departments and criminal justice systems, courts have adopted them. And uh, largely across the political spectrum, there's been a lot of emphasis on these tools and a lot of support for these tools. Uh, and so I think that, you know, we can sort of characterize where these systems go wrong and how they increase inequity really maybe in two broad ways. So the first is the, the tech, the more technical concerns. And this is typically what, uh, what people will critique these systems on, on the basis of saying that, well, you have these algorithms that are trying to predict these outcomes, but the algorithms are only as good as the data that are being fed into them. So if you have historical data that is itself tainted by histories of racism and discrimination, then all you're going to do is predict, uh, make sort of similarly racist and discriminatory predictions. An example of this would be that if uh, there are more arrests in black neighborhoods than white neighborhoods, even it relative to, you know, say that uh, they have the same crime rate, you're gonna have more arrests in black neighborhoods than white neighborhoods because of patterns of how police operate, which means that the data will suggest that the black neighborhoods are more uh, sort of more dangerous relative to the white neighborhoods. And so you'll send out police officers there more regularly. So you can get these sorts of, uh, you know, you, you filter bias into the system, you get bias out and you can get these sorts of discriminatory feedback loops. Uh, but to me, the more fundamental concern is around how these algorithms operate as tools of reform. Uh, they're often really central to ideas of uh, 
police reform, criminal justice reform. And, you know, the question is, are they actually, let's suppose that these algorithms could work, uh, would they actually be desirable? And uh, the answer to me is a pretty clear no. They're fundamentally, again, back to this idea of tech goggles, really fundamentally misconstruing what the problems in these systems are. Uh, so the problem in policing is not really simply just about police maybe mispredicting where crime will likely to be. It's really about what is the fundamental nature of policing? What sorts of actions are they taking when they're there? What is uh, sort of the massively expansive role of police in society? All of that. Uh, and similarly in the, in the criminal justice system, you know, we can debate on the one hand exactly who should be sentenced because they're likely to commit a crime or who should be detained before trial because uh, they might uh, commit a crime. But that's fundamentally sort of distorting or, or obscuring debates about what more structural reform could look like, whether we, you know, how would we uh, change these systems? How do we change the laws around uh, what people are sentenced for, how do we make sure that we just simply release everyone or many more people before trial. So it really is taking this energy around reform under this language of seeming fairness and objectivity because we're doing it with an algorithm and putting it into these sort of relatively minimal systems that are essentially, again, uh, as I said with self-driving cars, sort of optimizing around the existing policies and institutional arrangements. Um, and I think that that's incredibly dangerous as we can see movements and demands for reform with these systems and those uh, you know, demands have only been heightened over the last uh, year, particularly in the United States um, and putting those energies towards efforts that many people will get behind see as being uh, the, the sort of an example or the, the, you know, the enactment and implementation of those reforms, uh, when in practice, all those are doing is really just putting a new gloss on the existing system. So to me, the real fundamental issue with, with these types of systems and uh, along with many of these other smart city systems is the way in which they are presented as being great reforms, but really are uh, sort of ultimately actually entrenching the sort of existing deeper structures of how things operate and are just changing the sort of surface level uh, of exactly how the decision gets made. But it's still the same decision and it's still the same uh, you know, groups who have power and who are disempowered uh, and are the subject of these decisions as before. So do the technologies being used in smart cities, like predictive policing software, do they tend towards particular systems and structures of power, particular forms of government? Um, are they only capable of entrenching and further empowering existing elites? Or, or can we imagine a more thoughtful use of the technology, one that engages with fundamental reform of policing methods and structural reforms, but also benefits from data-driven insights? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, you know, this this is really one of the one of the key questions around where the future of smart cities look like. Um, I don't think that 
you know, any form of data science is going to be inherently uh, racist and inequitable. Um, and I think that I, one of the one of the goals of my work is is to point to the many of the sort of political and structural uh, sources of what look like unjust tech or what are unjust technologies to help us better see sort of what the source and sort of how these how these outcomes are coming about and avoid some of the technological determinism of saying uh, you know all technology is bad and I think you do you can often end up getting a lot of quite sort of reactionary discourse around technology that often wants to sort of respond to the very utopian uh, tech goggles visions by saying that we should throw all technology out. Um, but I think we need to be incredibly clear-eyed about all the ways that technology can go wrong and understanding the, the types of environments in which that technology is likely to have these types of outcomes that we are that we are concerned about. You know, if we go back to predictive policing, I don't think it's simply a matter of getting those tools to work right or uh, giving the police some other sort of of tool. I think that any tool that we're giving to uh, you know police departments are going to inevitably have uh, relatively discriminatory and unjust outcomes because they're going to be shaped by what the interests of these institutions are and what the general practices and policies of these institutions are. Um, so we need to think about how do we both find new ways of developing technology and conceiving of problems, and how do we also have new, new politics and new ways of governance that are not going to or sort of not set up to simply recreate the types of power relationships that we've had in the past. Um, so, so, you know, we need to really have this mirroring of reforms to thinking about technology, but also reforms to thinking about governance and public policy. And so, and that's, and that's very central to, to my work in, in the book and to the work I've done since is thinking about how you can combine uh, policy and political reform with technological reform and what would a new way of thinking about technology uh, look like? And I think central to that, though, uh, is this idea of agnosticism, of ultimately, you know, if we're going to think about how do we improve some social problem, you know, maybe one sort of opposite of tech goggles is this idea of agnosticism that I like to I like to bring into my own work of that technology is is sort of is not a necessary component of the problem we need to think about you know what what is the issue with policing for instance what are the ways that we can think about uh different institutional structures uh from reform to abolition and pursuing those different views and then what might uh what role might technology play and maybe technology will play a role, maybe technology doesn't. But having that sense that you really have to have a political diagnosis and a theory of change that comes first, uh, and then being able to see where technology may or may not uh, play a role in that. Ben, it's been great chatting to you. Thank you so much for joining Technology in Prose. Yeah, thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation.
was Ben Green, author of The Smart Enough City, putting technology in its place to reclaim our urban future. On the next episode of Technology in Prose, I'll be joined by Gary Marcus to talk about his new book, Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. If your asset is data, then you get interested in what can I do with a lot of data, which is fine from Google's perspective, but it's not necessarily the best way to do the science. And so it's distorted the science because the science has been become sort of what can Google do with all of its big data, which is an interesting question, but it's not, um, it's not a sterile question. It's not that there's nothing there, but it's maybe the wrong question if your question is, how do I build an intelligence? Thank you for listening. And until next time.